Section 16 of The Art of Letters. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Graham Scott, Cheltenham, England. The Art of Letters by Robert Lind. 10. Gray and Collins. There seems to be a definite connection between good writing and indolence. The men whom we call stylists have, most of them, been idlers. From Horace to Robert Louis Stevenson, nearly all have been pigs from the sty of Epicurus. They have not, to use an excellent Anglo-Irish word, industed like insects or millionaires. The greatest men, one must admit, have mostly been as punctual at their labours as the sun, as fiery and inexhaustible. But then, one does not think of the greatest writers as stylists. They are so much more than that. The style of Shakespeare is infinitely more marvellous than the style of Gray. But one hardly thinks of style in presence of the sea, or a range of mountains, or in reading Shakespeare. His munificent and gorgeous genius was as far above style as the statesmanship of Pericles or the sanctity of Joan of Arc was above good manners. The world has not endorsed Ben Jonson's retort to those who commended Shakespeare for never having blotted out a line. Would he had blotted out a thousand? We feel that so vast a genius is beyond the perfection of control we look for in a stylist. There may be badly written scenes in Shakespeare, and pothouse jokes, and wordy hyperboles, but with all this there are enchanted continents left in him, which we may continue to explore though we live to be a hundred. The fact that the noble impatience of a Shakespeare is above our fault-finding, however, must not be used to disparage the lazy patience of good writing. An Aeschylus, or a Shakespeare, a Browning, or a Dickens, conquers us with an abundance like nature's. He feeds us out of a horn of plenty. This, unfortunately, is possible only to writers of the first order. The others, when they attempt profusion, become fluent rather than abundant, facile of ink rather than generous of golden grain. Who does not agree with Pope that Dryden, though not Shakespeare, would have been a better poet if he had learned the last and greatest art, the art to blot? Who is there who would not rather have written a single ode of Gray's than all the poetical works of Southey? If voluminousness alone made a man a great writer, we should have to canonise Lord Lytton. The truth is, literary genius has no rule either of voluminousness or of the opposite. The genius of one writer is a world ever moving. The genius of another is a garden often still. The greatest genius is undoubtedly of the former kind. But as there is hardly enough genius of this kind to fill a wall, much less a library, we may well encourage the lesser writers to cultivate their gardens and, in the absence of the wilder tumult of creation, to delight us with blooms of leisurely phrase and quiet thought. Gray and Collins were both writers who laboured in little gardens. Collins, indeed, had a small flower bed, perhaps only a pot, indeed, rather than a garden.
he produced in it one perfect bloom the ode to evening the rest of his work is carefully written inoffensive historically interesting but his continual personification of abstract ideas makes the greater part of his verse lifeless as allegories or as sculpture in a graveyard he was a romantic an inventor of new forms in his own day he seems academic to ours his work is that of a man striking an attitude rather than of one expressing the deeps of a passionate nature he is always careful not to confess his ode to fear does not admit us to any of the secrets of his maniacal and melancholy breast it is an anticipation of the factitious gloom of byron not of the nerve-shattering gloom of dostoevsky collins we cannot help feeling says in it what he does not really think he glorifies fear as though it were the better part of imagination going so far as to end his ode with the lines o thou whose spirit most possessed the sacred seat of shakespeare's breast by all that from thy prophet broke in thy divine emotions spoke hither again thy fury deal teach me but once like him to feel his cypress wreath my mead decree and i o fear will dwell with thee we have only to compare these lines with claudio's terrible speech about death in measure for measure to see the difference between pretence and passion in literature shakespeare had no fear of telling us what he knew about fear collins lived in a more reticent century and attempted to fob off a disease on us as an accomplishment what perpetually delights us in the ode to evening is that here at least collins can tell the truth without falsification or chilling rhetoric here he is writing of the world as he has really seen it and been moved by it he still makes use of personifications but they have been transmuted by his emotion into imagery in these exquisite formal unrhymed lines collins has summed up his view and dream of life one knows that he was not lying or bent upon expressing any other man's experiences but his own when he described how the air is hushed save where the weak-eyed bat with short shrill shriek flits by on leathern wing or where the beetle winds his small but sullen horn he speaks here not in the stiffness of rhetoric but in the liberty of a new mood never for all he knew or cared expressed before as far as all the rest of his work is concerned his passion for style is more or less wasted but the ode to evening justifies both his pains and his indolence as for the pains he took with his work we have it on the authority of thomas wharton that all his odes had the marks of repeated correction he was perpetually changing his epithets as for his indolence his uncle colonel martin thought him too indolent even for the army and advised him to enter the church a step from which he was dissuaded we are told by a tobacconist in fleet street for the rest he was the son of a hatter and went mad he is said to have haunted the cloisters of chichester cathedral during his fits of melancholia and to have uttered a strange accompaniment of groans and howls during the playing of the organ the castle of indolence was for collins no keep of the pleasures one may doubt if it is ever this for any artist did not even horace attempt to escape into stoicism 
did not stevenson write pulvis et umbra assuredly gray though he was as fastidious in his appetites as collins was wild cannot be called in as a witness to prove the castle of indolence a happy place low spirits he wrote when he was still an undergraduate are my true and faithful companions they get up with me go to bed with me make journeys and return as i do nay and pay visits and will even affect to be jocose and force a feeble laugh with me the end of the sentence shows as do his letters indeed and his verses on the drowning of horace walpole's cat that his indolent melancholy was not without its compensations he was a wit an observer of himself and the world about him a man who wrote letters that have the genius of the essay further he was horace walpole's friend and while his father had a devil in him his mother and his aunts made a circle of quiet tenderness into which he could always retire i do not remember mr goss has said of gray that the history of literature presents us with the memoirs of any other poet favoured by nature with so many aunts as gray possessed this delicious sentence contains an important criticism of gray gray was a poet of the sheltered life his genius was shy and retiring he had no ambition to thrust himself upon the world he kept himself to himself as the saying is he published the elegy in a country churchyard in seventeen fifty one only because the editors of the magazine of magazines had got hold of a copy and gray was afraid that they would publish it first how lethargic a poet gray was may be gathered from the fact that he began the elegy as far back as seventeen forty six mason says it was begun in august seventeen forty two and did not finish it until june twelve seventeen fifty probably there is no other short poem in english literature which was brooded over for so many seasons nor was there ever a greater justification for patient brooding gray in this poem liberated the english imagination after half a century of prose and rhetoric he restored poetry to its true function as the confession of an individual soul wordsworth has blamed gray for introducing or at least assisting to introduce the curse of poetic diction into english literature but poetic diction was in use long before gray he is remarkable among english poets not for having succumbed to poetic diction but for having triumphed over it it is poetic feeling not poetic diction that distinguishes him from the mass of eighteenth-century writers it is an interesting coincidence that gray and collins should have brought about a poetic revival by the rediscovery of the beauty of evening just as mr yeats and a e brought about a poetic revival in our own day by the rediscovery of the beauty of twilight both schools of poetry if it is permissible to call them schools found in the stillness of the evening a natural refuge for the individual soul from the tyrannical prose of common day there have been critics including matthew arnold who have denied that the elegy is the greatest of gray's poems this i think can only be because they have been unable to see the poetry for the quotations no other poem that gray ever wrote was a miracle the bard is a masterpiece of imaginative rhetoric but the elegy is more than this it is an autobiography and the creation of a world for the hearts of men here gray delivers the secret doctrine of the poets here he escapes out of the eighteenth century into immortality 
one realises what an effort it must have been to rise above his century when one reads an earlier version of some of his most famous lines some village cato blank with dauntless breast the little tyrant of his fields withstood some mute inglorious tully here may rest some caesar guiltless of his country's blood could there be a more effective example of the return to reality than we find in the final shape of this verse some village hampton that with dauntless breast the little tyrant of his fields withstood some mute inglorious milton here may rest some cromwell guiltless of his country's blood it is as though suddenly it had been revealed to gray that poetry is not a mere literary exercise but the image of reality that it does not consist in vain admiration of models far off in time and place but that it is as near to one as one's breath and one's country not that the elegy would have been one of the great poems of the world if it had never plunged deeper into the heart than in this verse it is a poem of beauty and sorrow that cannot be symbolized by such public figures as cromwell and milton here the genius of the parting day and all that it means to the imagination its quiet movement and its music its pensiveness and its regrets have been given a form more lasting than bronze perhaps the poem owes a part of its popularity to the fact that it is a great homily though a homily transfigured but then does not hamlet owe a great part of its popularity to the fact that it is among other things a great blood-and-thunder play with jewels and a ghost one of the so-called mysteries of literature is the fact that gray having written so greatly should have written so little he spoke of himself as a shrimp of an author and expressed the fear that his works might be mistaken for those of a pismere or a flea but to make a mystery of the indolence of a rather timid idle and unadventurous scholar who was blessed with more fastidiousness than passion is absurd to say perfectly once and for all what one has to say is surely as fine an achievement as to keep restlessly trying to say it a thousand times over gray was no blabber it is said that he did not even let his mother and his aunts know that he wrote poetry he lacked boldness volubility and vital energy he stood aside from life he would not even take money from his publishers for his poetry no wonder that he earned the scorn of dr johnson who said of him to boswell sir he was dull in his company dull in his closet dull everywhere he was dull in a new way and that made many think him great luckily gray's reserve tempted him into his own heart and into external nature for safety and consolation johnson could see in him only a mechanical poet to most of us he seems the first natural poet in modern literature end of section sixteen